Well, good morning again. Most of you I know are parents. Some of you are young people. And I am pretty sure that if you're a parent, you have said at one time or another to your child, usually in a pretty exasperated state by this point, why did you do that? Why did you do that? And so often what we hear as parents from that little voice coming back to us is, I don't know, right? I don't know. Why'd you do that? I don't know. And that frustrates us as parents, but it is part of the challenging journey we have as parents to instill in our children this discipline of thinking before they act or before they speak. But the reality is we don't really grow out of that. As adults, we can actually all be guilty of not thinking about why we do what we do. To some extent, we're all creatures of habit. I certainly am. And so sometimes when you get asked in different spheres of life, why did you do that? Or if you ask yourself, the reality is our answer is, I don't know, because I've always done that. I've always done it that way. And lost is this knowledge or curiosity to know and to really look at whether what we are doing is good or bad or indifferent according to God's standards. And since we all will give an account one day, shouldn't we always want to know really why we do what we do? And that's particularly true when we come into the presence of God to offer sweet praise and worship to our Lord Jesus Christ on the Lord's day. We should know why we do what we do. And in all of life, we know where to turn to understand and test ourselves in these things. Uh, Romans 12 tells us, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship in all of life. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. And I hope you see that when you read a text like that in that last sentence, you know that not all things are good and not all things are acceptable. We need to discern what those things are, and we need to look to see what he has revealed in the Bible. And we're going to jumble the order a little bit this morning from how we normally do our sermons. And I'm going to give you the outline right here at the beginning. We are going to be turning to John chapter 2. And you can turn there. We're going to continue our march through John. But we're actually going to start by laying some groundwork before we get to the text. So... If you like headings, you have them in your bulletins in front of you. And we're going to start with kind of God's sovereignty, his purpose for us in worship. And then we're going to see in John chapter 2 this enthusiasm for worship, reverence in worship, and the price or the cost of true worship. Because there is a reason that we do everything. We know that. It tells the world who we believe in and who we follow in each day that we live. For Christians, though we certainly obey imperfectly, we always will. We'll need to repent and turn to Christ for forgiveness every day. We we know that, but our reason for believing certain things and our reason for speaking a certain way and our reason even for our emotions and how we feel about certain things and certainly the actions that we take, it must be God's perfect revelation in Holy Scripture. And this is easy when you see the very specific commands and prohibitions in scripture not always easy to follow but easy to understand and then there are biblical principles that we have to work through by prayer by study by the counsel of pastors and teachers that God puts in our lives and by living together as uh, sort of all the one and others in the scripture being with brothers and sisters in Christ as we struggle through and we try to discern God's will from his uh, revealed scripture And that is particularly true when we think about worship and we look across the modern church today. The church is often characterized by pragmatism. Pragmatism, it's a kind of a big word, but it means doing what we think works. Just doing what we think works, doing what people like, doing what may increase the numbers in a church by bringing people in, watch a movie, or do these things, and we play to the sensitivities or the cultural preferences or the felt needs and the emotions of people. And that too often forms the very basis uh, for why a modern church does what it does on a Sunday morning, on the Lord's day. All because it feels good to us. 
And that's actually not an appropriate basis for looking at how we worship. God never actually left the question of how to worship up to us. And you see this right at the very beginning of the Bible. We know Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel both brought offerings to God that they deemed acceptable. God was pleased with Abel's offering, and he rejected Cain's offering. And we should learn right there that not all worship is acceptable to God. It must be done his way. You get into the book of Exodus, and for those who follow Bible reading plans, you're probably getting close to this part of Exodus, several chapters, where God is extremely specific about the construction of the tabernacle and everything that goes into it. We get all of this detail, and in Exodus 25, 40, he's very specific, and he says, you must build this exactly to the specifications that I have given you. And we know that he revealed it in so much detail in those chapters that sometimes we get very bogged down reading through them and we perhaps miss the point that he's actually making to us. I always like to take a step back. Don't you think as they were making this tabernacle that there were people sitting on the outside watching the work be done and said, I think it would look better actually if you moved this over here and hey, 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 it would, uh, we need a little color up there. I don't like the colors that you've chosen, and God would like it better. Uh, I know you told Moses to build the altar five cubits by five cubits, but when you look at this space, it would be far more appealing and more usable if it was actually four by six. Like, God probably didn't get that one quite right. And what God was helping us understand in all of that detail is that worship is to be done according to his revealed will, not ours, not our preferences. He wasn't looking to us to construct a new or better way. And you can follow this all throughout Scripture by Leviticus chapter 10. Aaron's sons, the high priest's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offer strange fire to God and they play for it with their very lives. The king Saul in 1 Samuel 15, he's impatient. He makes an offering to God and he does it in all the right ways. But God rejects that offering. It's a non-prescribed offering. He didn't wait uh, for Samuel. And God says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. In other words, these external rituals that you do, even if commanded, are not good enough. It must be done from the heart and a heart that seeks to honor and praise and love the Lord. You can fast forward to Matthew chapter 15. It's a dialogue between Jesus and the religious leaders of the time. And they see the disciples and they're not doing all the ceremonies that uh, should be done. They're not washing their hands the right way. And they ask, (coughs) why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And Jesus replies to them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Their tradition wasn't necessarily wrong, but he's telling them, you need to turn back to the word. You need to test yourselves. You get up into the modern churches, modern in the first century, and you see the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit, speaking through him to the churches in the epistles. He warns the church in Colossae against promoting self-made religion. You guys are doing things that feel good to you, but it is self-made religion. He gets to the Corinthians is chock full of all of these admonitions, right? They're doing the Lord's Supper the wrong way. He, he chastises them for the abuse of spiritual gifts in certain ways. He sort of goes on and on. Now, thankfully, on the flip side of that, God does give us instruction on the elements that are to be present in all of our worship today. And you've got this list of verses there that I threw in your outline, uh, but it's quite simple. It should involve reading the Bible, 1 Timothy, preaching the word of God, 2 Timothy, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that reflect God's mighty work in redemptive history. You see that in Ephesians and Colossians. It should involve corporate prayer. You see that in Matthew and administering the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which we have the great privilege of getting to do today, together. It's all good and pleasing to God, but we can take even that and turn it into some sort of cold, rote legalism, right? Where we just are ticking boxes by what we do. We have to remember that everything we do in this is to be done with love and reverence and adoration for Jesus. Think of Jesus' words in John chapter 4, verse 24. We're not there yet, 
But he says those who worship God must worship in spirit and truth. You must worship in spirit and truth. And spirit points to the internal. We must come with hearts devoted to Jesus Christ. Our worship should ultimately reflect our gratitude, our thankfulness for who Jesus is and what he has done to save us. And we should be motivated as people who love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. Truth. We must worship in spirit and truth. And truth is coming into the presence of God with a right understanding of who God actually is. Not a God of the world, but a God who's revealed himself in Scripture. So worship has to be an act of love and knowledge. It has to be both your heart and your mind. And in Scripture, God has revealed these elements uh, for us to follow. I should also acknowledge he doesn't give us a, such a rote checklist that every church has to do the same thing. Churches will have different styles, and that doesn't mean that they're right or wrong. Right? He's left certain details to be worked out in accordance with the principles he's given us. There's nothing to dictate how long or short a sermon should be. There's nothing that tells us whether or not you can have an electric guitar and a drum or whether you have to just have a piano or nothing. Right? Those are all preference issues that can be done in ways that glorify God. But what we do know is that our words that we sing and the words that we preach and the words that you listen to should reflect our love of Christ and our love of his word. And it is here in working through this that the historic confessions of the faith are actually very helpful to us, whether it's Westminster or London Baptist or any of those, because all of these statements of faith are carefully worked out summaries of Scripture, and they provide the guardrails for Christian life and for Christian worship. So I want to read to you just two sections from the 1689 London Baptist Confession. You can find this link on our website and see all the footnotes that give you the Scripture references. It's just a summary of Scripture, but I think this summarizes it a lot so we don't have to continue to preach on what these things are the rest of the sermon. In uh, paragraph 22, it says, the light of nature, so creation, demonstrates that there is a God who is lordship and sovereignty over all. He is just and good, and he does good to everyone. Therefore, he should be feared, loved, praised, called on, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and all the strength. But the acceptable way to worship the true God is instituted by him, and it is limited by his own revealed will. Thus he may not be worshipped according to human imagination or inventions or the suggestions of Satan, nor through any visible representation, nor in any other way that is not prescribed in the Bible. The elements of religious worship of God include reading the scriptures, preaching and hearing the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as well as administration of baptism in the Lord's Supper. They must be performed out of obedience to him with the understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. Now, that's a very lengthy way to work into where we're at in John. So why all of this talk about worship? Well, I want you to consider this. The first public action that Jesus takes in his ministry, which is no accident, right, takes place in the temple at a place of worship. And in this, we get great instruction about how much God values the worship that we offer to him. Let's read beginning in verse 12 where we left off last week. After this, he, Jesus, after this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, 
zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we turn to your word this morning, that your spirit would illuminate it to our hearts, that we would indeed see how you value worship and that you would continue to work in us, that we may live lives, and especially on Sundays when we gather, that we would just be pleasing to you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we know that we saw the first sign that Jesus did, the first of his miracles, and that sign pointed to the beginning of a new creation in Christ, the Lamb of God, as John told us, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has indeed come, and he has entered into human history. And we must remember when we look at that, that the Lamb of God is not as we would describe him or you see in pictures today. He is not a weak and passive redeemer, right? He is our Savior, but he is also our Lord, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been granted. So when we approach Jesus, he indeed is the gentle lamb, the healing lamb for us who says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest for your souls. And we love that, and we should. And we should approach him, knowing he does not turn anyone away. But we must remember that this Jesus is also the Lion of Judah, who said in Matthew 10, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And whoever does, loves anyone or anything more than me is not worthy of me. So we must work to understand our Lord. In verse 12, we just have a transition, really. It takes us to the second act of Jesus. You could say this is a sign in a way because in this action, this sign, we get a glimpse now of a different side of Jesus, a passionate, strong, manly Christ who acts in righteous anger against sin because some time had passed. Right? We're told that some time had passed after the wedding and Jesus went down to Capernaum for some period of time, for a few days, it says. But now it was time for Passover. And the Passover, verse 13, the Passover of Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This brings us to our first heading. What I want you to see here is how much enthusiasm Jesus had for the worship of God in the very manner that God had prescribed. We know what Passover is from Exodus 12, right? The Feast of Passover took place as a remembrance of how God had delivered his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. And it was a picture, a foreshadowing, that they were to remember this year after year because it pointed forward to how God would ultimately deliver people from being enslaved to sin and the death that comes from it. We know the story. God sent his death angel to kill the firstborn in Egypt. But that angel passed over every house of Israel who had sacrificed an unblemished lamb to God and who had put that blood on the door posts and the lintels of the house. And then God had commanded every Israelite to remember this every single year. And part of that remembrance was that he had commanded that every Jewish male return to Jerusalem, really their whole family, but the command went to the male heads, return to Jerusalem every year to be in the presence of God where they would celebrate this Passover feast. And now I want you to consider where Jesus was. Jesus was in Capernaum, as were any number of other Jewish people. It was an 85-mile walk to Jerusalem, uphill. Jerusalem sat much higher. Capernaum's on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and so it's much higher, hence he went up to Jerusalem. That gives some people great consternation because Jerusalem's south of Capernaum, and they, but he's going up to Jerusalem. Now, couldn't he just skip it? I, I mean, that's what should go through our minds. Couldn't he just eat Passover at home with his disciples? What's wrong with that? That is a very long arduous journey on foot and for any of the other Jews and there were Jews from all over the place who, who would make this and obediently come to worship God this would come at a tremendous cost 
It, it wasn't free. Time of uh, going on a journey like that, the money that would be involved, the lost work, the lost wages, the physical exertion, this was quite a demand on people. And so couldn't Jesus, of all people, couldn't he fall back on the, fa the fact that God knows his heart? And if God knows his heart, couldn't he just do Passover at home in a way that uh, kind of looked like what God had commanded, but satisfy the needs of the people? Because he could do this, right? He could, they could sacrifice a lamb in the backyard, and they could do the Passover feast in their house, and it would feel almost like going to the temple. See, if Jesus treated worship the way that many Christians treat it today, treat church attendance today on the Lord's Day, sadly, I think he actually would have stayed home, right? He could do everything there. We are clearly urged in Hebrews 10, 25, not to neglect, to meet together as is the habit of some. But the numbers do not lie. Only 20 to 30% of professing evangelical Christians like us attend church at all. And that's self-reported, so the numbers are probably closer to 10%. If you want to know what true religion looks like, and there's articles written about this all the time, what true religion in America looks like, you just need to look at sports. You just need to look at sports. Look to what parents will do to make sure that their kids never miss a practice and never miss a game. That's what real religion and devotion to a God looks like. And sorrowfully, in America, we teach our children right out of the gate that it is always better to put worship and submission to God in a distant second place if there's any opportunity for entertainment or personal gratification. This is not new. The Jews had these same pushes and pulls on them when it came to worship, and, and Jesus and all the Jewish people outside Jerusalem had a tough choice, and we need to recognize that. They could either worship the way that God had instructed them, or they could do it their own way. And then they could convince themselves that it was close enough and God should accept a new form of worship and then they would avoid the hardships of travel, the missed opportunities, the work that they'd be away from. So we see Jesus do something here that's important. A and it's important to recognize what the Bible tells us. Ephesians 5, Paul tells us to be imitators of God. Peter said, Jesus left you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 1 Peter 2.21. John wrote, Whoever says he abides in Jesus, follows him as Lord, is saved by him, ought to live in the same way in which he lived, 1 John 2, 6. And when we look to Jesus in this episode, we don't see him making any excuses whatsoever. We see him going to Jerusalem. No doubt excited to be one with God's people who gathered at that time to praise God and offer up sweet prayers of thanksgiving and to confess their sins and offer sacrifices according to the law so that they could be forgiven even as they looked forward to that day when a perfect lamb would come to make the once for all sacrifice. So there he goes and after walking this arduous 85 mile journey, what Jesus found in Jerusalem was disheartening at best. And it stirred in him a righteous anger. And, and this moves us to our next heading, reverence in worship. What was happening is that Jews were coming from all over the, the I was going to say all over the world, but in that known world at the time. They were, many were coming from a long ways away. This was one of three feasts where they would all come to Jerusalem and there was huge economic opportunities and it was hard for people to pass that by just like it is today, right? This is almost like having a fair in town or something. All these people come in, there's huge economic opportunities. But as Jesus enters those temple grounds, instead of prayers and sweet songs of praise that he would expect to hear, and he instead hears the bleeding of sheep and the cooing of pigeons and the flapping of their wings in cages and the bellowing of oxen and the loud bartering back and forth between those who are buying and selling, all filling the outer courts of the temple grounds. So what should have been a place of purity and separation from the world and, and just honor and praise to God, instead it looked and sounded and smelled like a feedlot or an auction house. Verse 14 says, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now as we read that story, we can easily see what's wrong with the picture. You do not have to be a scholar to sort of roll your eyes and say, oh, that's bad. It's really easy to see the faults of others when we look at them. 
especially in history because we know how the story ends. And so we can look back at this and roll our eyes and say, oh, how could this possibly be? It's true, but I mean, how could it be? How could they do these things? I want you to consider this from a different perspective. What if this was you? And what if this had become normal? Because it was. Wouldn't there be a good reason for all of it that you could justify? Every Jewish man who showed up to worship at Passover had to pay a temple tax. And that temple tax had to be paid with a particular coin. That had to do with the weight of silver. So they, they knew that they were getting what they wanted. So you're coming from a distance. There are different currencies used everywhere at that point in history. And you needed a money changer. And lucky for you, the money changer, for his part, he's going to do a good thing. He's going to set up shop right there in the temple for you. He's going to make a healthy wage on top of it, a really a usurious rate he's going to charge. But what convenience. You can just walk right there, change your money, and pay your tithe. Tick the box. Good. It's done. Well, you need an animal sacrifice, too. You cannot approach a holy God as a sinful person without a sacrifice. We approach through Christ, the once-for-all sacrifice, but here in the first century, you cannot just walk into the temple and approach God. You need an atonement for sin. You need a blood sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, you might have walked in with your grandparents, and they might have said, boy, you don't understand how much harder it used to be. They used to sell sacrificial animals on the hillside across from the temple, which they did in history. But Boy, it's better now. It's so much better now. It's so much more convenient for everyone, for us as the worshipers, for the priest who has to slaughter this animal, for the seller now who's just going to hand it over. They've moved right in. Look, you don't even have to get your hands dirty. You just have to pay the money. You don't have to wrestle this sheep or this ox from that hillside. Oh, you should have seen that. Back in our day, my dad used to make me wrestle that sheep all the way down the hill and all the way into the temple, and it was I was a mess. By, but now we just come in and we pay our money and these guys walk the sheep right over to the priest for us and we can just go right in. The price is paid. For the right price, it can all be done for you. This is pragmatism at its best. Right? The ends justify the means. God should be happy by their apparent obedience. They are in Jerusalem. They are making a sacrifice. They're going to pay the tithe. Everyone can worship, but they get it with ease. It's very convenient, and it saves time. This is a win-win, as they say. A win for God and a win for us. What a wonderful thing we've created. That's the same thing we do today in churches all across the United States in particular. Do whatever it takes to get people to sit in a church. That's okay. Compromise. Ignore biblical truth. Say what soothes the conscience. Be more like the world. Whatever it takes, as long as you get them there, if they're there to worship, then aren't the means justifying the ends? We have a full church. The answer is always no. Always no. It was no then. It is no now. God ordains the ends. He wants us to worship together, but he ordains the means as well. King David knew this. If you were at the end of 2 Samuel, most know this story. When he went to offer a sacrifice to God, he was offered everything, right? You can have it for free, David. Take my oxen, take their yokes to build the altar. You can have uh, the land. And he said in 2 Samuel 24, 24, no, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. The easy way is not always the right way to worship in spirit and truth. Sometimes it is. We should come with joy in our hearts. But it's not always the easy way. And when Jesus walked in and saw this, he must have observed that the one thing that the temple had been made for, the reverent worship of God, is the one thing that was not only missing, but nearly impossible. Because instead of the temple representing the presence of the holy God, which it did to the people, it looked and sounded like a marketplace and smelled like a barnyard. And so we read in verse 15. And I love this because it tells you that this was, this was not a, a reaction on the spur of the moment, but it involved thought. It says, making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple 
with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. This is a righteous, holy anger that is on display here. Jesus is showing us that godly people are a passionate people. We, we are not a passive people in this world. We, we listen to those lies all the time from the world. Be quiet, don't say this. No, godly people are a passionate people. Passionate for the things of God. Jealous for his worship and honor and praise. Zealous to remove any barrier that would keep somebody from true worship. We want to make way for people to approach God in reverence and humility for the forgiveness of sins and sweet communion with him in prayer. Ritual and ceremony, even when commanded by God, these were people going through the right motions. They are of no use if it's not done out of reverence to him out of a heart that is thankful for his saving grace, out of a heart filled with adoration to our holy God and a hatred of the sin that's left in us and it's left in all of us and we fight against it every day. See, whether you're in church today or you were going to the temple in the first century, going through the motions with a heart and mind that's remained devoted to the world actually won't do any good. It might make you feel better, but it will do no good. And God makes this very clear throughout the prophets. I'm only going to read you one example. It was the shortest one, Amos chapter 5. Listen to what God says. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer to me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But we convince ourselves all the time, no matter what we do in church, that God's pleased. And you read texts like this, and it's in Jeremiah, it's Isaiah, over and over. We go back to the words of Jesus, worship in spirit and truth. God cares what we do, but God cares even more about why we do what we do. It's a matter of the heart, and it's a matter of the mind. Jesus doesn't just have great enthusiasm for worship. All these people are there. It is for pure and holy and righteous worship. Hebrews 12, 28 tells us to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. We need to take these things seriously. Here Jesus saw nothing when he looked out of the joy and the thanksgiving for what God had provided and the reverence and awe of God. Everything was just going through the motions. And while we may find this temple scenario so easy to identify because it's just bizarre, we couldn't even imagine having this amount of chaos, I can tell you that if you look, if you're so inclined to look, you can find equally abhorrent practices in the modern church all over the world and all over YouTube actually. Churches that appeal to the flesh, that ignore the word of God. They preach man-centered sermons to make you feel good. They sing songs that do not bring honor to God. They, I colloquially refer to them as Jesus is my boyfriend songs. Right? You could substitute Jesus for the name of your boyfriend and it would be the same song. But they sing it in church. And they may be really large. But I want you to know, as we sit here, gathered to worship this morning, there is nowhere in the New Testament where God commends a church on its size. He doesn't. You can be small or large. That has to do with who God brings and how he chooses to bless his worship. But at gatherings of people are only pleasing to God when we are faithful. That's what he's calling for, faithfulness to him. I'm going to read you a fairly long quote from Richard Phillips, who's a very accomplished pastor, and I think he says this very well. He says, what we do in worship reveals what we think about God. A church that worships through dry and joyless ritual shows that it believes in an absent God. A church that stirs up emotional enthusiasm and fills the worship service with entertainment believes in a weak God who needs spiritual help. But what does it say when people reverently lift their hearts in praise? It says that they think God is worthy and great. What do Christians show when they humbly confess their sins? They show that they believe in a holy and forgiving God. 
What does it say when we commit ourselves to prayer? It says that we believe in a God of power and love. What does it say when Christians are devoted to the reading and teaching of God's word? It shows our belief that God has revealed himself, that his word is truth with power to save. What does this church say by worshiping according to the Bible instead of the latest worldly fad and fancy? It says that God matters more than worldly approval. and His ways are trustworthy and right. You watch Jesus here. He is not worried about offending anyone when he walks into those temple grounds by speaking and acting according to the revealed will of God. He was focused on drawing people to reverent worship in accordance with scripture. He wanted sinful man, sinful people to come into the presence of a holy God on the basis of a substitutionary sacrifice for their sins. You understand that's what we do every day as Christians and especially on the Lord's day. We are invited to come into the presence of a holy and righteous God who's also a loving father and we do that on the basis of a once-for-all sacrifice made by Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God. And because we trust in and follow Christ as Lord, we get to call upon God as Father and know that we are His beloved children. And the Bible tells us we can draw near with confidence that He hears our prayers and accepts our worship and answers them. But sometimes it comes at a steep price, and that's our last heading, the price of worship. Because looking, again, take yourself back to the sounds and what must have been in that temple ground that day, it must have been utter chaos, right? As money is spilled all over the floor, just think of the people diving on the ground to grab coins, right? Animals are running out of this place, being driven out. Their owners are chasing after them. It is pure chaos. And we are told that the disciples sitting there and watching that in verse 17 have a thought. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And they were reflecting on Psalm 69. Now, we could read that statement out of context without going to Psalm 69, and we might read it something like this. Wow, Jesus is full of enthusiasm for God. And we see that as a great compliment. Zeal has consumed him for the things of God. That would actually be true. That would be very true about Jesus. It's not what the disciples are meaning here. They are standing back and they're watching with some degree of trepidation. It's sort of like asking yourself this question. What are you willing to suffer or lose for obedience to Christ and worship in accordance with God's righteous and holy decrees? Will you lose friendships? Will you lose, uh, what are you willing to lose? Because you may lose a lot. A church that refuses to follow worldly trends is going to be heavily criticized, and so you're going to be part of that. A church that proclaims biblical truth is not going to be branded as faithful Christians, not by the world. No, it's going to be bigoted, backward, hating, all of the words that they throw at fundamentalists, like all these words that they throw at it. Faithfulness to Christ will bring you great reward, but not always necessarily in this life in the way that we measure it. And definitely not from people who are committed to worldly agendas. Whether they profess to be Christians or not, sort of irrelevant. What the disciples are remembering, and you see this throughout the New Testament, you always need to go back and look at what they're quoting because it's pointing us back to the whole thing. They quote Psalm 69.9 as they are remembering. But here's the psalm, how it starts. It's a psalm of David. He says, save me, O God. For the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. In verse 7, he continues, It is for your sake, God, that I have borne reproach. It's because of you, God, and following you that people treat me poorly, that dishonor has covered my face. Verse 12 says, I'm now the talk of those who sit in the gate. The drunkards make songs about me. And this is all because I follow you. So now do you understand what the disciples are actually saying as they watch Jesus? And they watch the religious leaders approaching him. And they see the chaos. 
they look at Jesus and they see his passion for God's glory, for true worship, and they know that it is likely not going to win him many fans right then and there. It is going to lead many people to hate him and even seek to destroy him. And not just any people, the religious people, the people who want God on their own terms. I love my own version of Jesus. I love my own version of God. He, every time I come to church, he tells me how thankful he is to get me because I am so good, right? That's the world we live in today. They look at Jesus and they know, you just disrupted the order of things here. People are not gonna like this. Religious people are not gonna like this and they're not wrong. Jesus quotes this same psalm in John 15 taking us back to it again when he said, they have seen and hated both me and my father. They hated me without cause. Now given what the religious leaders knew or should have known from the scriptures, truly they had no cause for hating the Christ who came to seek and to save the lost. What should his actions have actually sparked? Deep repentance. Deep repentance, not hatred. Just repentance, knowing God will forgive and he will restore and he will draw us near if we will just repent and come to him. That's not the way they react. It's hatred. In verse 18, we read, The Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Now John uses the term Jews often to refer to the religious leaders, which is clearly what's going on here. Think about what had happened. Jesus had just exercised tremendous authority in the temple. And do you remember that they don't know the rest of the story? This is right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's not well known yet. How did he do this? But note that they do not argue against what Jesus had done. Not at all. They could not do that. And you see this throughout the Gospels, throughout Jesus' ministry. They never could do that, which is why they resort to lies and stacking up false witnesses. Same is true today. I know that's in the Bible, but, right? And then follows something. They could not question Jesus on what he had actually done because they knew that they were violating the holiness of the temple. They were impeding the true worship of the people. So here what they do is they shift. They focus on the basis of his authority. What can we do to make you stop? You don't have authority to do this. This is the last quote I'll read you, but I have to read this one from William Hendrickson because you almost never see something written like this in scholarly work. And it just, it kind of cracked me up when I read it, but it's also very true. He writes on this verse, this request was stupid. And he highlights the word stupid. It wasn't a good question. He says, the majestic manner in which Jesus performed this task so that none seeing him even dared to resist him was proof sufficient that the Messiah had entered the temple and was purging it. The request for a sign was not only stupid, however, it was wicked. It was wicked. It was the result of an unwillingness to admit guilt. Oh, how often people confronted with the word of God, instead of turning from sin, turn to hatred to the one who shared it. Most people experience this if they do evangelism, but you see it every day in the news, too. It's the nature of compromising on God's word. People begin to believe and tell themselves that their actions are righteous because it ticks some boxes and it feels good, but the hard stuff, Sin, repentance, sacrifice, worship, these things are easy to excuse away. And when the word of God is insufficient to a person to convince them, or it says what they do not want to hear, they rebel. Usually against the messenger. Who are you to say these things? And they want to see a sign instead of hear the word of God. 
And that's exactly what these men were doing. To the Jewish leaders in the temple, a great sign had just been given. Think of who they are. They're the experts of the law. They are the teachers of the people. They're the ones you go to when you want to understand the scriptures and know what it says. And one of the the best-known messianic scriptures was the last verse of Zechariah. They knew it well. It says this, There shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day when the Messiah comes. But they couldn't see this. Malachi gives us another example in chapter three. Jesus will quote this later. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me, right? And Jesus says, this is John the Baptist. But listen to what it says next. Again, taught in the temple. And the Lord whom you seek, the Messiah that you are waiting for, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi, the priesthood. And they will bring offerings in righteousness now to the Lord. It should have been clear to those who were experts. But the corruption among the religious leaders, it clouded their vision and they missed the sign that was given to them. The authority that Jesus had exercised was like something they had never seen. It came not because he was a servant of God like Moses, but because he was God's son. And he had authority like no other. And the purity of worship was of utmost importance. We'll close here because I want to ask you, what do you think the people did? Turn in your Bibles if you have them to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. What do you think the people did? Two years later, where it's the third Passover, Third Passover during Jesus' ministry. So sometime between two and three years later, he returns to Jerusalem. And what do you think he will find? Will the people have learned? Did the religious leaders actually watch his example and turn to God in repentance and faith? Did they restore the pure worship in the temple, longing to please God? Mark chapter 11, verse 15. This is the they as Jesus and his disciples. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. People didn't listen. They didn't learn. We see these things. We need to examine our own hearts, right? We need to recognize something about our nature, our sinful nature. We need to think about why we do what we do because people naturally slide towards what is easy. We all do. We naturally gravitate towards what's easy and what appeals to our flesh, even in worship. Think of it this way. You strive for holiness. You drift away. It takes no effort to drift away. And just think how easy it is today. We have made it so easy. If there is any reason to skip worship, any reason whatsoever, inconvenience, something on TV, whatever it is, you hear it every day, I'll just watch it online. I'll go back to where we started. I'll just sacrifice the lamb in my backyard. I don't want to walk 85 miles. And when people do this, there is no corporate prayer. There is no loving one another as the Bible calls us to do. You don't just come to church for you. You come for your neighbor. There's no service, just box ticking. The first time Jesus entered the temple in John, he drove out those who were selling in the money changers. Two years later, he entered the temple and he drove out those who were selling and those who were there to worship, those who were buying. Does this not strike you as a little bit odd? At the beginning and the end of Jesus' ministry, we see him driving people out of the temple, out of the place that represented the presence of God. That does not match the actions of the Jesus of the world, does it? The Jesus of the world is a Jesus who tolerates everything, who overlooks sin, who's just grateful if we will give him a tiny bit of our life and our heart. 
Here Jesus is pictured at the beginning and the end driving people out. It doesn't match what the world tells you. But it does match the Christ Jesus of the Bible. It matches the Jesus who went to the cross and endured the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. It matches Jesus who comes to us, says, repent and believe for salvation. And who embraces every man, woman, and child who turns from sin and trusts in his person and his finished work. Jesus paid it all, like the song says, and his scripture affirms. It matches the Jesus who gives to his people the Holy Spirit, who opens our eyes to the wondrous beauty of Christ and draws us to worship him, not according to our will and desire, but according to spirit and truth. And that indeed is the invitation to everyone. Turn to Jesus. You have a bad past. It's okay. You might have a great future. Turn to him. But he does care why we do what we do particularly in worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so grateful for your word. And we're so grateful that you've sent your son to live among us, to take on human flesh, to live as a man, to model what it looks like to live perfect, holy, sinless. And Lord, though we fall so short, we're so grateful for that free offer of grace that by coming to him, we can have our sins washed away. We can be made new in Christ. We can trust that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we pray that you will continue to work in our own hearts. We know that we're not perfect, Lord, but oh, how we desire to please you to bring glory to the name of your Son and how we long for the world to see that in us. Lord, now as we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper, we pray that indeed you would give us the special sense that you are here among your people, that as we commune, uh, we both commune together and with Christ, looking forward to that great wedding feast as we pray, come, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.